You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the most fascinating and unexplained sociological events in recent American history is the decline in the crime rate. It's so obvious, stark. Uh, from 1960 to 1980, violent crime soared 270%. It peaked at 758 violent offenses per 100,000 people in 1991. Then, between 1994 and 2017, the violent crime rate was cut in half. What was the reason? Well, among many reasons, uh, candidate Joe Biden explained the crime bill that was passed in 1994 with his support, with his partial authorship, worked, and the violent crime rate was cut in half. But that 1994 crime bill was as controversial for him as it was helpful with a few audiences. It's also been controversial for Hillary Clinton and for Bill Clinton. A little context is necessary. When you get to the early 1990s, the fear of crime is palpable. The stats are there. 44% of Americans afraid to walk alone at night within a mile of their homes. 54% of Americans feel there was more crime in their area than there was a year ago. There are nine murders per 100,000 people. It's up even from 7.9 in 1970, 5.1 in 1960, down slightly from 10.2 in 1980. Aggravated assault, 424 incidents per 100,000 people versus 231 in 1975 and 88 in 1960. The latest stat we have for that in 2018 has a dropping from 424 per 100,000 people to 250. Let's look at something else that affects a lot of communities because it's one thing to just think about crime in, say, 1990 and the cities and the crack epidemic urban areas declining, people leaving urban areas. Well, let's look at vehicle theft, because while it's happening in cities, it's happening everywhere. 502 incidents per 100,000 people in 1980, 657 per 100,000 people in 1990. It ticks up, and it had been 473 car thefts per 100,000 people in 1975, and just 183 in 1960. So there's a tremendous increase in all of these areas of crime. Just 219 per 100,000 people in 2019. You're really at the level of 1963. All of it inserts politics at every level. It's in every state election. You have to remember 1988, Dukakis enters the election as a, a competent governor. 
and goes up against George Bush, who didn't many people didn't have a perception of as vice president under Reagan. And he defeats him partially on the crime issue, using an issue of Willie Horton, who had been a released parolee who had committed a rape and murder. Now, using not only that, but linking it to Dukakis's lack of support for the death penalty. Bill Clinton emerges as a different type of Democrat. You got to stop these things from happening in the first place. But if you get somebody who's really bad, I think capital punishment's okay. appropriate, and I think no parole's appropriate for sex offenders. I support it. I have enforced it twice against two people who were multiple murderers. I know what Senator Harkin said, but this is the most violent country in the world, practically. A governor who supported the death penalty in his state and wanted to run on being tough on crime. Out of his early presidency comes the crime bill. It's a mix of people supporting this bill, and it has a mix of functions. In July 1994, a group of 10 black mayors from big cities, um, a group of 10 African-American mayors from big cities, Atlanta, Cleveland, Detroit, urge the Congressional Black Caucus to support this crime bill. And it does. Not all of the members. Members like prominent members like John Lewis do not support this bill, but 26 of 38 members of the CBC support this bill, along with President Bill Clinton, who will eventually sign the bill. The full name of the crime bill is the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, now commonly referred to as the 1994 crime bill. There are provisions that try to protect communities and victims of crimes, battered women, for instance. It has funding for prevention. It includes investment in alternatives to incarceration, has $2 billion in funding for drug treatment, $3 billion billion more for early intervention programs, such as a drug court, which could be an alternative form of justice for those in drug treatment. Conservatives make fun of this bill. Bob Dole ridicules it. Everyone calls it the Midnight Basketball Bill because of one community crime prevention program that it instituted. But it also contains other provisions, ones that don't stand up as well, at least with one side effect of this. It contained powerful funding incentives that put more Americans into the criminal justice system than ever before. It played a central role on the war on drugs dedicating a billion dollars to state and federal law enforcement to fight crime, including an authorization of six of $96 million for new federal prisons, including authorization of $96 million for new federal prisons. There is a reason that it had to contain prison funding, and that's because it earmarked funding to states that adopted tough truth and sentencing laws that scaled back the ability of judges to offer parole. The crime bill of 1993 is by no means the first step. In fact, it could be considered like a final step in reaction to the surge in crime that started, say, with 1965. New York State's Rockefeller drug laws imposing 15-year mandatory minimums for possession of marijuana and other drugs were a big contributor in that state. The Omnibus Crime Control and and Safe Streets Act of 1968 provided $400 million for law enforcement. These were not successful. And it seemed like candidates and congressmen were constantly responding to events in the news. Len Bias, 
promising college basketball star in 1986. He's just signed by the Boston Celtics. And to celebrate, he and a friend engage in the use of crack cocaine. He overdoses. They try to prosecute the dealer. Within months, President Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which increases federal funding for law enforcement and requires harsher penalties in federal drug cases, including life imprisonment. A prominent sponsor of that bill is the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. He's also a prominent sponsor of the 1988 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. It strengthens prison sentences for drug possession. The crime bill law is one of these things, you know, which I think requires some degree of historicism because if you don't, it's, oh, how could you enact such a law? But you have to take yourself back to the time and the absolute fear. Now, some of this fear could be misguided, but it's also very real. Uh, James Clyburn voted in favor of the bill at the time. Crack cocaine was a scourge in our community, said. We wanted it out of those communities and we'd gotten very tough on drugs. And that's why yours truly and other members of the CBC voted for that 1994 bill. Where does Joe Biden fit in? Well, Biden always seemed to be running a little bit more conservative on this issue than the rest of the party. He wanted to establish himself as not liberal. A lot of Democrats did, including President Clinton during the 90s, because they were walloped in the 80s on this issue and others for being too liberal. Usually when the attack of liberal came in the 80s, it was related to the crime issue. When he was attacked as a liberal after this, he would say, well, if you're calling me a liberal, then the liberal wing of the Democratic Party is for 60 new death penalties, 70 enhanced penalties, and 100,000 cops, and 125,000 new state prison cells. Yeah, he's bragging about it. 100,000 cops, that was a big part of the selling of this bill, that it reached a lot of towns and communities with individual cops. Biden said as late as 2016, there are parts of the law he changed, particularly the sentencing guidelines, but it did, in his opinion, restore American cities. I think there's two things to talk about. One is that the crime bill, some statistics show, didn't really lead to as much prison building. A lot of that had already been in place, even though it offered some incentives. Nonetheless, it pushed in that direction. Um... A report by the National Institute of Justice in 2002 found that federal TIS, Truth in Sentencing Grants, were associated with relatively few state truth in sentencing reforms. Most states increased incarceration without a TIS program. They just flat out increased prison sentences. And did the crime bill actually reduce crime? A report from the GAO estimated that funding for all the police services that it provides might have contributed to as much as a 1.3% decline in the overall crime rate. But something else happened to bring it down 46% and not passing a bill. And really, there's lots of theories, you know, maybe improvement in the economy in general, maybe demographics, population changes, There's a lot of theories, and this is really one of these mysteries where there is no definite answer. Now, someone will write me after this podcast, yes, this is the reason. There really isn't. These debates continue to go on. 
that even when crime declines, the perception of it doesn't seem to go down as fast. Here's 2014, one of the lowest crime rates in American history. A majority of Americans said to Gallup, there is more crime in the U.S. than there was a year ago. 63% of Americans in 2014 believed that crime was up, where the FBI found that violent crimes in 2013 decreased by 4.4%. Property crimes down 4.1%. There's um, a lot of reasons for this. Perception, um, Iceberg and Momolo of Princeton University did a study in 2017 about this. And not surprisingly found that the perceptions in the eye of the beholder, people who live in a place that might have more crime believe the crime rate nationally is higher, right? Not surprisingly. Also, those of a higher income or education level tend to be closer in line with the actual national trend than those with less education and less income. There's a possibility of a increase in crime. There was... Increase in rates from 2020 to 2019, and it's something to continually uh, monitor. They're still far less than, say, 1990. So we'll see if this is a trend that continues. And But the whole reason for me to discuss crime is that it was a signature in issue of the current president of the United States, and it's something that really he established himself on. Uh, I sat down to talk with Matthew Holland of the political dark side podcast recently about this and other issues and his real question to me coming from the uk was why did america elect joe biden so i'm going to address all of his questions a very interesting interview i enjoyed talking to matthew his podcast is the political dark side podcast talks to a lot of different kinds of people with a lot of different kinds of subjects you can find him on apple podcasts I've spent the last six months trying to work out exactly how we have Joe Biden as the current president of the United States. So to help me to put some meat on the bones of my ignorance, I've drafted in the host of the excellent podcast titled My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on the air for 15 years. Welcome to the political dark side, Bruce Carlson. How are you doing, sir? Very good, Matthew. Very good. Yeah, 15 years goes quick. So look out. It's going to happen to you. (laughs) Great. Look forward to that taking me by surprise. (laughs) Um, So Democrat Joe Biden, the 46th president, strikes me as an unusual choice to be leader of the free world. And I use the term loosely in the current climate. Mm -hmm. Uh, The image presented of him seems to be an intentional juxtaposition to Donald Trump in as much as he's presented as almost a sweet old granddad in the face of Trump's aggressive style. Um, personally, I'm not convinced of his persona, uh, regardless of the rights or wrongs of the Trump presidency. So I'd like to look through his history and ask you about a few incidents and their relevance to Biden today and his suitability to be in office. So to warm up, what do you consider to be the darkest element of Joe Biden's history <laughs> that's of his own doing? Wow, we got to start. We got to start that way. OK, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a bunch of things, but I don't want to be. The um, I don't want to be so much of of that voice of of an anti Biden voice. Let's say I'm just here to explain things so that if you have that feeling, here's 
what actually would support that. The general comment is I think that uh, that juxtaposition is very important, is very real in a sense, even though with as with all political figures, there's a little bit of selling going on. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, there's some things that aren't, the government isn't going to change completely, you know, on January 20th with any president. But I feel like, uh, you know, there is that juxtaposition position is almost the answer to the question. It was huge in the 2020 election. It's actually huge in all incumbent elections. So the darkest, I think it's better to make a general statement there that you have a person who is a senator from Delaware. Delaware, and I don't know how well this is known outside the United States, but it's a particular state. The sm- it is the sm- one of the smallest states. And because of that, they manipulated their um, laws in the state to attract corporations. In other shell words, companies. shell companies or just co- corporations. I mean, uh, I happen to work for one. That's a almost every <laughs> company in the United States is a Delaware corporation. Yeah, See, because you don't have to pay. I believe you don't pay corporate tax, though so you do pay a fee, and you have to maintain an employee in Delaware. Though those people you can outsource it to. So they have this huge system that particularly helps. Uh, Newcastle County, Wilmington. Well, guess who was the county commissioner before he became a senator for Newcastle yeah. County was uh, was young Joe Biden back in 72. So because of his um, being from Delaware and that state and all of those laws, a lot of corporate activity there, a lot of banking, a lot of credit cards in particular, even more yeah. than banks. So I think that is where you're going to mine for the richest treasure, you know, if you're looking for these sorts of things where he's been defending some interest like credit cards and um, lack of bankruptcy protection and bad on uh, student loans in the past, even though currently as president, he has a he, he, he has a program for that in, in his past. He's been uh, he's been bad on those issues. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd asked about the. Well, I mentioned the shell companies there because I'm, mm-hmm. I saw something about the Panama Papers, and I'm sure Delaware popped up, and I instantly thought, "Oh, that's funny, Joe Biden's state. What's the? How does that relate to his, you know, relationship to special interests?" And you've basically answered the question there, pretty much. It um, would be hard before him. Um, there, well, no, actually, alongside him was Roth, and Roth is the Roth 401k, uh, Roth IRA, I should say, which is a financial instrument, and many other pieces of legislation. Delaware uh, politicians are known for usually getting the finance committees or being leaders in that legislation. And, you know, and, and this goes way back, by the way, Delaware's always sort of been a, a fairly um, well enough to do state or in a colony before that. And it's small. And that means that generally speaking, it, it had more of a city population than it had people to say take care of. So it's it's always had some maneuverability where corporations are attracted to it, but particularly now it's its laws. And yeah, I mean, in terms of the Panama Papers, it's kind of funny because I think from our view in the United States, there's a lot of folks who will say like, well, we don't really need those because we have Delaware and Nevada. And Delaware at least, did, um, Delaware, well, I won't go too long with it, but Delaware basically... Uh, does make you name who the head of the corporation and the treasurer and things like that. In Nevada, at least up until recently, 
you could just form a corporation and nobody knew who the corporation was. And only recently have courts been able to puncture that. So yeah, in America, we don't need those, some of those things because there are states that will actually handle that business. Yeah. Um, to, to stay on the, the idea of economics, um, Biden doesn't run in 2016. And ultimately, you end up with the Donald Trump win. And for me, that's a pushback to a perceived political establishment class of lifelong politicians who have made promises to people which get broken, coupled with the aftermath of the 2008 financial crash and mm. the, the destruction of employment uh, after China joins the World Trade Organization in 2001. Um, the crash can be directly linked back to the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, which deregulated the banking industry. Um, Biden himself has stated on numerous occasions his biggest regret was his involvement in that. My biggest regret are a couple of votes I cast. I wish I had never voted to repeal um, um, uh, the legislation limiting banks, what they could do, Glass-Steagall. So do you think he's economically sound? I mean, uh, you know, that that's, uh, I think that I would just go back to the earlier statement about, you know, he's really always been um, a senator that has been supportive of more of financial interest than directly with consumers, always with a little bit of, of course, no senator is going to completely just say I'm passing laws for the bank. So, for instance, in 78, he has a role in student loans in the uh, Middle Income Assistance Act, which provides uh, student loans. And this is when Jimmy Carter was president for middle class Americans. That was a big thing at the time. There were a lot of tax cuts and things all aimed at middle income. Everybody was going for that at that time. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, so that's great. He signs up with that. He he also puts an amendment, however, to make those loans not subject to bankruptcy, meaning that from 78 on, uh, for the first time, you're not able to claim bankruptcy if your debt is a student loan from the federal government. 
that is a and and I don't believe that fully takes effect when he puts his amendment on. But later in 1986, he's supportive. He's actually absent for the vote, but he's supportive of of another legislation that uh, actually does away with that bankruptcy. Now, I think that's also a contributor to 2008, if you ask me, because so many people had student loans and weren't able to pay them. And these are young and working people. And it's a different situation in 2008 and even in the 1990s, but there are greater debt levels in 2008, student debt, than you had in the 60s and the 70s in America, because then people were borrowing. And frankly, some people walked away from those loans, could no longer do so. You couldn't claim bankruptcy. It doesn't count towards your your student loan if that loans with the federal government. So that is something that Biden was for. So he has that duality of, well, I'm going to be for people, but I'm also, you know, doing this favor for the banks. And a lot of the Democratic Party prior to the crash of 2008 looked at the financial companies as somewhat safe for progressive, if you ask me. And, and you say, well, what do you mean? And, and I will well, look at the options. The Republicans in America generally, and you know, generalization, but funded by, at that time, not, not as much anymore, pharma companies, um, beer wholesalers, gun manufacturers, gun rights groups, all of these groups of people that might be villains in a lot of other areas. And for the Democrats, the financial and banking companies are like, well, you know, we can raise money from them. And they don't care how we are on social issues. The bank could, Chase Bank does not care about gay rights. You know, if anything, it's going to be for that, you know, at least as much as you, you could in 2004 to 2008. But there's this whole host of issues that they took with them and only started to revisit that in after the crash. And Biden's just one of those people. To get to Glass-Steagall, um, I guess a question I'll ask myself there is, is there anything nice to say about the Glass-Steagall laws at all? They're put in in the 30s, if people don't know. Um, and it basically what it says, there was so much problems during the Great Depression in the United States with banks playing with people's money, going out and investing money. By the way, this goes way back before the Depression. There's problems with insurance funds that were collected in the 19th century, these tortine funds that were kind of a little bit of a Ponzi scheme disguised as life insurance. And you get into a situation where the, these insurance companies have huge amounts of money. They decide not to pay some of the dividends, give themselves bigger salaries. They're big corruptors, big invest, big investors, if you will, in politicians. So this is something in our history. And it just in the 30s is when there's a, the first set of laws um, banning this so that you at least have to separate a bank from an investment company. Now, is there anything nice to say about repeal? There was a problem, to be fair. In the 1987 Black Monday crash, I just did a podcast on it. And I got to tell you, you're going to find out as you do these podcasts, I think. You start doing different topics and you learn different things and you start to see where things intersect a little, you know. And this is a possible point. Um, one of the problems that happened during that Black Monday crash on that day, which came frighteningly close to the market just no longer operating to it was the still remains the largest percentage drop on one day in the New York Stock Exchange. And London had a bad day, too. One of the problems was cash liquidity. These these investment companies did not have enough money 
because they're merely investment companies, they're not banks, to keep that market afloat. And they had to rely on banks to fight to fund their accounts to keep these people investing if you wanted that market to ever go back up on the next day. And only through some maneuvers by the Fed, uh, some talking by various market leaders, even we know the chief of staff of the White House, Donald Reagan, during the Reagan administration, was calling people and saying, look, this is going to be okay. We will float you giving banks the assurance that they could fund these investment companies. But it was scary there for a while. And investors pick up on all that stuff and it affects the stock price. So after Black Monday, there's a lot of people talking about Glass-Steagall and saying this is a negative because you cannot, um, we cannot effectively fund these investment companies alone in a problem don't have enough funds. You need to get banks involved. Now the changes did not happen until, that was a hue and cry for a while it did not happen until the Clinton administration when you had kind of the such a belief in the stock market and the dot-com movement going on. And then Biden was, of course, one of many senators who um, supported that repeal. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was one of many factors that, that caused problems later because now you had, instead of just investment companies in trouble, you had banks in trouble as well. And they had to all be bailed out. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a horrific crash, 2008. I mean, what what more can we say about it? It was, it was uh, I was doing my podcast during the time and I remember doing a Great Depression podcast just to let people know what that was like so they would know if they were experiencing a new depression. Just time. to cheer them up a bit. Cheer them up a bit, because, <laughs> but it was getting pretty close. It was like kind of a, I, I basically calculated that if, if 2008 was like the U.S. Great Depression, we would have something like 10 million people roaming the sub suburbs looking for work, and you didn't want that. And we didn't because there were, luckily, things like Social Security are in place and government protections, unemployment, COBRA, which in the U.S. maintains our health insurance after we're let go, and the uh, stimulus bill funded 60% of that COBRA. So you had these protections that otherwise, though, you would have a very similar situation to the 30s. The crash was just as large and frightening, frightening. Um, so Biden deserves whatever criticism one wants to give. Um, now, it, it, the question is, is he economically sound, like meaning that uh, now he's president, right? And And I think probably what you're getting to is like, if he's wrong on all of on a lot of this stuff, like if he's president, what is he going to do? Look, I don't have the answer. Um, uh, the fair side of me wants to say that anybody can say anybody's capable of change. Anybody's capable of, for instance, saying, "Well, I'm not I'm not the Delaware senator anymore. I don't I don't I don't have to listen to those banks." And and also, I'm getting older, and I got my inner voice, and that's it. And I'm going to do what I want. So. You know, you see both sides of that. It could go one way or the other. He's not bound to all the positions he had as a senator. And no senator who runs for president is necessarily. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned like his duality of um, being for the people, but also being for a certain amount of special interests. I and mean, you certainly saw that with, sorry, the dog's on the move. That's okay. You, you certainly saw that with the, the Obama administration. A lot of their appointments were wall street types i believe um, every democrat appoints the most 
like because they get scared that the the market's going to be afraid of them because they're scary Democrats, you know. Yeah. So they they end up appointing a Clinton appoints. Uh, I guess it was Solomon. It's either Solomon or Goldman. They all go to the same place. Uh, Merrill Lynch. Reagan went to Merrill Lynch. They go to one of the Wall Street houses and pick a Treasury Secretary from there. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll we'll move on from from economics to uh, race relations. This one might take a while. <laughs> in in the South Carolina Democrat primary in, in twenty twenty, Biden received sixty one percent of the African American vote, which essentially reignites his presidential campaign. Mm. Uh, I find his race relations to be genuinely remarkable, and as much as I'm not sure how or why he's so popular, given some of the things that he's said and done or why the media gives him a pass on it. I mean, just to reel him off, his his position on Bussin, his friendship with Strom Thurmond, his friendship with Robert Byrd, the interview where he mm. says, if you don't know whether to vote for me, then you ain't black. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. The interview with Cardi B, which was just cringeworthy. Mm. The bizarre corn pop story. And of course, the creation of the 1994 crime bill and the subsequent aftermath for the African-American population. So what, how does he get away with that and be presented as champion of the black population, essentially, is what I'm looking for. And I don't and I think it would be I think anyone who would present him that way probably deserves criticism because um you, you cited a bunch of things that are fair criticisms, right? Um, and there's a lot to explain. I think I'm going to, you start with the basic American elections, right? We don't have, um, even though I, I still feel like UK elections are still mostly a similar thing. They're mostly labor or conservative. But you at least have the other parties who can influence things. And, and you've seen in recent elections and you had uh, the 2010 where it actually you actually had a coalition and you have others where there's enough pull from one party or the other that might be influencing the result. We do not have that. We have two choices, essentially. The third party candidates run. They get a small amount of the vote. Occasionally, people look at the numbers and say, you affected this state or that. You have two choices. You pick one or the other. Um Biden was up against Trump. And uh, while Trump is enormously popular, you um, referenced earlier that you believe that Trump ignited a feeling of people against the establishment. I've heard very similar things. I know a lot of people that feel this way. I, I, I even feel little of the frustration about some of the stodginess of establishment and party politics myself. Um, and, I, and I definitely know the feeling. I think that's exactly what happened in 2016. So you're absolutely right. Um, and it, it, it came in two forms, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And I just think in the general election, Donald Trump, I'm not sure he got all the votes of Bernie Sanders. He got some. I know people who were Sanders Trump, Sanders in the primary, Trump in the general. He got some people who voted with their feet by not voting at all, who who were Sanders supporters, perhaps in various states. In it just wasn't as much excitement about Hillary Clinton's campaign. She picks a very establishment VP candidate in Tim Kaine that wasn't exciting any of the Sanders people. So that's 2020. 
And so Trump wins. It's a very narrow plurality election. It has to do with winning states. It's not a majority of the country. There's millions of votes the other way. He um, was not enormously popular at any point during his presidency, but has a huge fan base and his social media activism. So you're presenting the image. So I always saw that as kind of like, it was a difficult thing to deal with because there was all this fire and all this excitement in some forms and still is in social media. And you might say, oh, this guy's going to be a winner. And he very well could have won re-election, but obviously COVID, obviously the economy related to COVID. A lot of people say we might have been headed there anyway with tariff policies or any, anything in a poor economy. And most incumbents don't win a poor economy. Wasn't enormously popular. He is popular among Republicans, but not popular generally among the broad swath of the country, particularly in urban areas where a lot of people live. His whole hope was to win an electoral college victory. We have that here where you can win certain states. That's that's nice. You did it in 2016. There wasn't much. That's like trying to win a, a jackpot every, you know, twice in a row. It probably wasn't going to happen. So you almost had a situation where anybody but Trump, as long as they were, um, you know, reasonable enough, we're, we're, we're going to win. So it wasn't like a great, I don't think most Americans, you know, looked at all these characteristics and made their choice as an emotional choice. And it was a, to, like many elections where there is an incumbent president, even the ones without somebody like a Trump who could be polarizing, even your plain old presidents, your, your Clinton, your George W. Bush, your, your Obama, what have you. It's always about the incumbent president, their performance, and American voters assess it. Biden could have been almost anyone and, and would, have, would have won. That's what I think. Um, now, that's why he's there. Why did he get the South Carolina vote, the African-American establishment, I mean, far be it for me to say that I'm an expert in that field, but just my own observations are that for all people's thoughts about American um, and African-American voters in, in our country and how they make assessments and how, and I would say how the majority of them make assessments and how the majority of voters make the assessments, they tend to be a very pragmatic group of voters. They aren't always as interested in the cause or the um, the issue as much as people think. And they're very interested in strategy and winning. Um, they have to be, because in a lot of states, including the one you mentioned, South Carolina, they're a large group, but not a majority. So it's always finding coalitions that will enable them to to win if they're ever going to win in a state like South Carolina. And that's what you saw in that prime. Biden's a more established position. African-American voters have been in the Democratic Party a long time, and and the poll numbers are exceedingly high for Democrats. There, there are about anywhere from, um, you know, depending on the election, from 6 to 15 percent that vote for Republicans. Back when Nixon was, um, not so much when he was president, when he was vice president or during Eisenhower's term, the, there was a large Republican, uh, African-American vote. So they, but the majority now vote um, Democratic. So then they're looking at who's going to win. So electability, they don't want that vote wasted. And that's what a lot of that primary is. And even, they even selected him over, say, uh, 
Kamala Harris. Yeah, uh, for, for me, the, the the crime bill is so important in this situation because, like you maybe said, they they won't necessarily be looking at the cause, but ultimately, mm -hmm. the the crime bill does or has such a large effect on so many African American families that I find it difficult to understand how that could be looked past to then still give Joe Biden the vote. And I and I don't I don't really know if I have a total answer for that. A group of people, perhaps, that are oft disappointed. So the disappointed the disappointment doesn't have the same emotional tenor it does with you or I often because they've been disappointed so much. I mean, I think there's some element of that, particularly those have been in politics a long time, lost a lot of battles. Um, the fact that the Crimeville has so many um fathers if you will right there's not it's not just him i mean it's clinton it's hillary clinton to an extent that he she was very involved in bill clinton's white house it's a great number of um it's a group of republicans it's a great number of people um and i don't want to be the biden campaign here i certainly think that that was you know the the obviously looking back now it was a mistake um I also don't want to engage in too much presentism where we um, just think of things in the values of today. Bring it back a little bit. There's two things to consider. Crime was very high in the United States at that time. The other thing was the bill was bringing in um, a more democratic or um, more of a people's issue, at least at that time, which was 100,000 federally, 150,000 federally funded cops. Now, these days, I think we look at police in America and we have a different view. But if you go back then, you're talking about a lot of towns and cities that didn't have enough and they couldn't locally funded means local taxpayers paying for it. Federally funded means generally richer people paying for it and giving your your town cops. So there was this kind of more democratic or populist issue within that uh, crime bill, in addition to the horrible things. And then all the horrible things that were said during the legislative process about predators and about um, criminals and things. I will just say that if you bring yourself to that time, um, crime and fear about crime was enormously high. The fear was probably higher than the actual crime. It almost always is. But I do, I was around during that time. I wasn't as much walking around in cities and things like that, but it, it was a very different prospect. You know, most people didn't feel as safe working in cities and things like that at that time because of crime. I think there's one more point to make though. To be fair, when someone is, you know, um, near 80, you know, in, in their 80s or near that age, you know, you're, you do have to question, since they're on the same stage as, say, a, you know, 40-year-old, does the 40-year-old get a pass because they never existed during that time and never had to take a position? And that's the presentism debate that I would always ask. Did Buttigieg, for instance, get a pass during those primaries? Because he never had to stand up as a senator when probably your office would have been filled with people saying, do something about crime, get me more cops. Things they probably wouldn't, get me more cops isn't the thing you're hearing from voters these days. But certainly in 94, you were. Certainly you were. Uh, now, that's an interesting, that's, that's an interesting now, I by, point. I just, but just Matthew saying that, I by no means want to defend the prosecutorial aspects of that or the overload on the rhetoric or the... Um, 
or the uh, maximum sentences. Those are all huge mistakes. And anyone who did them deserves, you know, the, the policy criticism they get. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about um, second chances and redemption, but equally, you're saying that, you know, like, say, Mayor Pete, for example, wasn't necessarily around to answer for the problems at the time. But then if Biden was around to answer for the problems at the time, surely the whole point of politics is holding your elected officials to account and then removing them for the mistakes that they have made. Yeah, and I think he, um, look, I mean, totally. It's both. It's both at the same time. You don't you don't give somebody a pass for being old either. I just do think that it's it's useful, like, especially if someone's running against younger opponents. It's like, we could go back to the busing thing, for instance, because that that's where Kamala Harris comes in, where she actually made an issue of that. And it's it's there again, you know, he was a senator who actually had to face the issue when constituents, a majority of constituents in his state would have pushed him that way. She was a senator when that would have been politically impossible. Well, only the most uh, racist voters would have even brought an issue of busing up in California when Kamala Harris was a, a a center. Incidentally, it is interesting, though. She did end up with the same position as Biden, which is, in other words, and, and they pointed that out. In other words, uh, if a community didn't want it, they shouldn't be forced. Well, that's the exact thing that was the whole issue in the sense. But Biden had an Biden was both as a Newcastle County uh, Delaware commissioner and as a senator um, directly in that debate. Uh, they wanted to bus Wilmington. Uh, and um, they wanted to uh, bust them into the outer county, more suburban areas. Um, he was com against it. He also went to town meetings where people were yelling at him to be against it. You know, it was totally the the, the overwhelming opinion of, of most of his constituency. Um, there were even some in the city of Wilmington, even some were African-American, were like, I don't want my kids going to school where if I get called from work, I can't go see them or, or get them. I don't have a car and things like that. This is what he brings up in his defense, at least. Um, so Biden, though, is a busing opponent in the Senate. Um, there's no other way to look at it. He will. The best you can say on that issue is that he um, saved there was a bill where they were going to eliminate, there's some Southern senators who are going to eliminate even the ability of the courts to do any kind of, to order busing if the county refused to do it. And Biden actually saved that. However, he allowed a bill to go forward and supported a bill in the same process that eliminated the ability of the federal government to uh, the United States government, to the Justice Department say, to order that a county uh, institute busing to correct a wrong. It could only be the courts under Biden. So, so you know, he's going to he's, he's gonna say I saved busing, and at the same time, he's against it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Um, so that's a very uh, another important issue. But again, like I did notice, I, especially as a historian, I, I have a little bit of I'm hearing Kamala Harris attack him on it, and I'm thinking, well. You're just benefiting from youthfulness, I guess. And maybe it's right for voters to think about both things. Yeah, he, you didn't make the right choice then. You should have. I, okay, so I guess the way to say what you're saying, Matthew, is I would rather have someone before me who's 80 years old who made the right choice back then. Absolutely fair to say. Absolutely fair to say. Is If it's available. If it's available, you know. It should be available. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. But, um, to, to move on to foreign policy, um, he was, of course, he was in favor of the Iraq war. And as part of the Obama administration, he's involved in the continuation of Middle East intervention. Mm -hmm. um, there's some strangeness with the backing of the far right Ukrainian government. And there's uh, a frostiness with Vladimir Putin, obviously. Um, is he a capable statesman on the international stage? I mean, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tough hand that America has right now for any president and uh, he's capable enough. Um, I don't see any overwhelming success so far though. There's nothing I can point to and say, this is great other than, you know, you're not Trump. And I think there were some concerns with Trump about being on the other, you know, too far on the other end of the pendulum, perhaps too friendly with Vladimir Putin as we sort of seem to be entering this second or maybe some might say third cold war because some people count the 40s and 50s and then the early 80s as two different cold wars and we could be entering a second or a third right now where the battle is over uh cyber attacks and microwaves versus um and, and a few satellite states say versus uh you know troops or nuclear weapons which we're actually hopefully both working to try to reduce but the, the other things are, are going on, and I haven't seen any great success there. Is he capable? Um, you know, um, so, so we'll go back to the same question you, you asked on the ec economics. So if you look at the past, then, yeah, what, what reason do we have to be confident when 
the choices were made that were wrong in the past. I think it's an acknowledged wrong right now about the Iraq war. And there's there's two Gulf Wars, really. You have to go back. And since Biden's a senator such a long time, I'm finding this in my podcast. He's showing up. He's like a Forrest Gump. He's showing up in every aspect <laughs> of history. I'm talking about Carter's 76 convention, and there's Biden in the background. He he picked the convention city. He's, he's, he is a senator as early as 72. I mean, th- th- he's been in politics. It doesn't get any longer than this. Just, just um, to, Sorry, just to dive in on the point you made about um, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, now we can look back on the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. He was there as vice president from 08 to 16 with the benefit of hindsight, knowing it was wrong then. And they still, America still maintains its position in Iraq for that, that time. So he had his eight years to make his decision about it. Yeah, so. no, I, I get you. Um, I get you. And there is an evolution. You know, he starts um, his, he was a, came out initially against the first Gulf War, where Iraq uh, invaded Kuwait and we were going to use military force. First President Bush. However, after being against it and losing the vote, he makes every possible positive statement about the war and attacks other Democrats who are attacking George H.W. Bush. Then, as you know, in, two th- in, in 2001, and I actually want to stay there because I think there's enough. You don't even need the hindsight. I think there was enough at the time to know in 2003 that this evidence was shoddy and that if you just asked a few questions that almost any senator should have been capable of, that uh, you would know not to go to the war. And it was more about attacks on patriotism and someone like a Biden want to retain their Senate seat, maybe have a chance at the presidency 2004, 2008. And that voting for the war was um, was more politically convenient. And then I I. I I think you're right, with a, maybe a small caveat that a, that a vice president has whatever influence a vice president has. So that kind of a call is really on President Obama with just a recommendation at the table from Joe Biden. However, to your point, I doubt that recommendation was any more pro-withdrawal than Obama's position would have been. It's possible. We'll find out it, it was, but I don't think so. Um well, his yeah, position we was withdrawal, wasn't it? Obama ran on a campaign of bringing the troops home, didn't he, in, in 08, and then immediate. well, not immediately, but there was an about turn or, a, oh, we'll do it in six months, and then the can gets kicked down the road continuously mm-hmm. until it, now. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's basically what happened. And then, and then once, um, I mean, I think the original sin, we should make it clear, original sin is in 03 and 04. And if George W. Bush isn't pushing it, even for the I would even go as far as to defend Biden and Clinton and the Kerry and the other senators that voted for it a bit. It's always the president of the United States here, at least, that we give some foreign policy credence to. They always have a bit more information. I I can repeat what I said, that I believe any reasonable person should have been able to ask the right questions. Bernie Sanders did it in, in, in the case of the Iraq war and say that this is, this is crazy. Um, Paul Wellstone, Bernie Sanders, other people, this is crazy. You don't have enough evidence to do this. We can do a containment. We can, we can try sending inspectors in. We could do a lot of, you know, Saddam Hussein's not a nice guy, all of these things. But, um, and there's, two tragedies about it. One is that we went into war, perhaps we didn't. And the other is that we pulled troops out of the Afghanistan effort. So there's two things going on there at once. 
The original sin goes to Bush, though, who had the information, manipulated the information as near as we can tell, really got away with it for for two terms. Um, Colin Powell has regretted his statements. It's very clear that his statements were different from memos that he was presented with. So to be fair, there were some there wasn't always clear information given to the Senate or to the U.N. Uh, by the people who were, whose job it was to do that. Uh, we see now in their own memos. So you get to 2008 and now you're, yeah, but now you're president and troops are on the ground. It's a very different thing. And, and you, and really Obama's position was um, removed from Iraq because the right war is Afghanistan. So he was still running as a pro-war campaign and Democrats really haven't been able to get away from pro war that much as the general party candidates here. Even Kerry running in 04 was still pro-Iraq war. He's just going to win it quicker or fight it differently. And in 2008, Obama was, well, I'm pro-war. I'm just the right war is Afghanistan. So it's politically acceptable at that time. Well, that was after the the war was extremely unpopular and, and deaths were being announced every night. Um, and then you saw what happened. You really have little maneuverability because the minute you're pulling things out, you get something like uh, the the uh, the the, the uh, Islamic State that comes in and fills the void. But there wouldn't have been a void if we hadn't started in the first place. So it is a bit of a different policy choice to continue than to start it in the first place. Um, now you see that he's um, starting to wrap up the Afghanistan war. And again, it's that same thing where I even see some liberals and Democrats now asking, well, I mean, we're all for stopping war here, but boy, now we think it's just going to lead to something bigger once you pull out and Taliban takes over Af Afghanistan. And, and so you, you almost end up after the first death or after the first blood, it's really hard to, to be that pacifist later. I mean, someone has to do it. Someone has to cut, but uh, it's a Pandora's box, really. You don't want to open it and see what happens, essentially. And if the real question to me is, you know, how did Biden win or why was there another Democrat available? I mean, you look at those other choices, I don't think they would be doing much better. Um, Buttigieg, Harris, uh, even Warren, I think, you know, foreign policy wise would be similar. You probably have a different with Sanders. I don't know whether it would be better or not. I just know that it would be different. Why didn't Sanders win? Two things happened. One was COVID that basically shut down the primary. That's the other thing. You, you referenced that South Carolina primary. And uh, um, by the way, I apologize if I'm rambling a bit. I No, I, it's, I, it's perfect. I told you we wouldn't <laughs> have enough time. And then I knew I, I should have known that this is the way I do things. But uh, anyway, you talked about that South Carolina primary, but and that was the signature event, but that was only the origin of Biden even having a chance. What The way I see the whole thing is Biden really did pay a price for all of the mistakes, for all of, by the way, what throughout his career, a lot of like goofy statements and weird stuff, um, the war, the war vote, everything else. I, I believe he did pay a price because before South Carolina, he was losing. And for any Democrat before Joe Biden, that's the death knell. You're done. Some other candidate takes it away. The trouble was there was a split among both the more, say, moderate or establishment Democrats and the progressive or liberal left Democrats. Warren Sanders and Buttigieg Harris, um, Klobuchar, Biden. 
splitting votes. So no one was really winning outright in a convincing way, saving it for South Carolina, the first big win in a state. And, uh, and because of the comeback, you know, that's that there's some momentum there, but, but also you still would have had Biden versus Sanders, but in effect, it, I did notice that COVID kind of shut the yeah. game down for a while. There's, there's certainly like a machine, though, that gets behind a, like a certain candidate and can mm-hmm. deny deny other candidates that it's choosing. I mean, you saw it in 2016 with Clinton and Sanders. Why not somebody like Tulsi Gabbard, especially in terms of foreign policy, uh, having served in Iraq? I do understand she served in Iraq. I think American voters, that's a positive for American voters, but most American voters kind of know that play. It, it doesn't, it carry tried that in 2004. It got them as far as it's going. Just because you're a veteran. John McCain as well, I suppose. Yeah, just because you're a veteran. It, it means a lot in America. It's definitely one of our treasured values, especially across the 50 states, you know, if you're not like in the, in the you know, the east side of Manhattan or something. Um, but everywhere else, I mean, it's a treasured value to be a veteran, but it doesn't necessarily extend that everyone's going to agree with your your foreign policy. Um, Her position was, was more, you know, I've been mm-hmm. there, I've experienced it. This is a bad mm-hmm. thing. We shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. Whereas previous uh, ex-military candidates, I, I don't recall them denouncing um military intervention as much it was more like i served something awful happened to me vote for me as opposed for as opposed to i served we shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. yeah well we get also getting very late in the war too though you know we're we're in our 20th this will be our uh this is this is a crazy one this is the 21st uh or the 20th year next year will be the 21st year of the war if we don't officially end it um no one expected to go on so long uh i can only imagine if the vietnam war went from 68 to 88 where we fought if we fought the 88 election where biden is also a player if uh i'm just gonna ask you about that (laughs) but uh real quick if uh i think i think it's uh absolutely what you're saying is right i think like that's that's probably your greatest asset, you know, a veteran who who can make that case. But I do think, again, I go back to a little bit of um, just just looking at history of, and things and a little bit late, too. You know, now the war has gone on for, you know, I guess by 2016, we can say it was 15 years. So a little easier to be against it then than, and say pull out than um, – than in when it when we really needed somebody young, say in two thousand three, who would have run in the Democratic Party and been a veteran and 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 been able to make that case. A lot of people were open. That's the thing. Uh, Kerry, for instance, was an anti-Vietnam War activist as a young person, and so I know that a, there were a lot of disappointed Democrats who was hoping that he would do something similar at that time and say, "I am a veteran." and make his convention speech in Boston, I'm against this, I will put an end to this. You know, maybe it was something like, I'll do it responsibly, I'll get troops out safely, whatever. But it wasn't, it was definitely a statement of, we're gonna win, I'm just gonna win faster. Well, win faster means more blood or more, Mm -hmm. putting more people in. So no, yeah, we haven't um, gotten in there. I can't tell you why a specific candidate like Tulsi, you know, didn't didn't get it in, in 2020, I tend to think most Democratic voters, it's not all like kind of 
corporate and manipulation and things. I, I think there are a, a lot of um, Democrats in in the United States who are who are more um, of a moderate to to conservative persuasion. They're not all um, liberals just because they're Democrats. There's a very like union type Democrat, uh, older type Democrat in the United States that, uh, and then then we're not even talking about the South where you have Democrats who go back and they're still listed as D and they might yeah. vote for Trump or vote in a for a conservative in a primary. So you got a lot of that going on. 50 states, it's a, yeah, very, uh, very hard country to be very liberal in. Uh, she's from Hawaii. She got her congressional seat from a very liberal district. So uh, that's hard to run nationally. Most of the attention given to her is given to her by Republicans now, and mostly when she attacks other Democrats, like on the Fox network. It's yeah. not for her social programs or, or or being against the war. It's more more for might they might get interview her on Fox News about Syria or positions there. Um, but I really think what happened um, to wrap it up on the 2020 to answer the the first question is that why we even have them is. Um, there was a consolidation that occurred. So that is, you talk about machines and establishments and things. Boy, I tell you, if, if you want to believe that there's a cigar-filled room where nowadays it would be vaping, where somebody picks candidates, well, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Harris give up on the same day, leaving it to Sanders, uh, Biden, and Warren still in it, but most people thinking it's Biden-Sanders. She was there as a spoiler at that point. To the Sanders she was a spoiler, vote. although, you know, I can attest to it certainly wasn't AstroTurf. I, there are real Warren supporters here. I mean, you just ask them. They will, they'll light up a Twitter or light up a, an actual room. Um, they, were, they were there. It was, yeah, it was split on that. I, I, I don't know how that would have worked. I really think COVID killed the, the game after that. Um, it canceled the primary in a sense. And, and also... The whole primary was this conviction that Trump had to be beaten. And so electability became a factor. Those three candidates that gave up, I think each one looked at it, Buttigieg, Harris, Klobuchar, and said, it's not going to happen for us. There's no, We don't have a way to run this table. So, And I'm sure somebody went to somebody and said, you want a chance of being VP? Both to Klobuchar and Harris. To even have a chance, you have to do it now. Senator's waiting for your call. For Buttigieg, you want a secretary position, or do you want to be a losing candidate for the presidency? Yeah. With and and you know, not a lot of people make it back from that. So, what do you want? You know, Biden did, but most people don't. <laughs> um, that's what I think happened. There are some kind of deals, and and also fear of Trump. Trump was the other for most of the Democratic Party. That's real. That's not a manufactured thing. Voters feel, Democratic voters felt that way too. Like, stop fighting so much, we got to beat this guy. Little, that wasn't the case in 2016, where there was a lot more vigorous primary, I, I believe. Yeah. I mean, you said the electability is what it boiled down to. And I suppose the whole point of uh, this conversation is me trying to understand based on Biden's history, how he had any electability oh, okay. at all. Yeah. So I, I, another yeah. element I kind of wanted to look at was uh, his relationship with the truth. Um, there's He has numerous sexual assault allegations from eight different women, um, including most prominently Tara Reid. 
um, on there's an episode of David Letterman where he claimed to have been arrested for trespassing in the Senate at the age of 21, which turns out to be uh, no record of that. Um, his 1988 presidential campaign, as you mentioned, that goes up in flames after various mm-hmm. false claims about his education and a plagiarised speech from uh, the UK Labour Party leader, Neil Kinnock. Democratic presidential candidate Joseph Biden today faces a controversy. Three weeks ago at a debate at the Iowa State Fair, he used phrases identical to those delivered by British Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock. Biden seemed to be claiming Kinnock's vision and life as his own. Why is it that my wife is sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college? Why is Glenis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? My ancestors who worked in the coal mines in northeast Pennsylvania and come up after 12 hours and play football. Eight hours underground and then come up and play football. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. There was no platform upon which they could stand. So I suppose I'm asking, are these suitable character traits for a president? Well, it worked for it worked to be a vice president in 08 and and in in 12 is the easiest answer. And then when you're if you're looking at electability as someone who, if you generally want Democrats to win or or more to the point you want a Trump to lose, you probably, despite everything we're t- we've talked about today, student loans, these allegations, statements he made, silly things he's done over the years, um, statements that I think made according to some books that I've read, made Obama's eyebrows roll, like, Joe, don't do that anymore. Like, you know, things like that. Why do you pick him? And it's a, a vice president is a stronger candidate, but then that doesn't answer why Obama would have picked him, right? Um, Bond's from Delaware. Delaware only has three electoral votes. It's pretty meaningless. However, as goes Delaware, very often goes the Philadelphia uh, media market. The Philadelphia media market's connected to the, winning the state of Pennsylvania. State of Pennsylvania was a must win for Trump in 2016. Nobody thought he'd win it. He did win it. He's very popular in the western side of Pennsylvania, but it's not the populated area. Incidentally, he did fairly well in the eastern part. I looked at a county called Bucks, um, which normally goes, uh, it, it switches over the years, but it, it, it won, Hillary Clinton won in 2016, but just barely. And usually there'd be more of a margin for Democrats there. Biden won it in 2020. Um, Winning Pennsylvania is a key. It's not only that for the faults. And I don't, and I, I can't speak to the allegations. I will never, you'll never hear me say, don't listen to a person who makes an allegation. That's not, you know, it just didn't seem to carry. It didn't, you know, it was out there. I think it was available for for voters to look at. I think eventually it just didn't make a difference for most people is the best I can say. Um, But in terms of that electability, that goes to two things. One is just, you know, as someone who watched the poll, that state of Pennsylvania is critical. And it was also critical in 2008, critical in 2004. It's been 2000. Pennsylvania is a critical swing state, uh, especially one that's reachable by Democrats where others aren't as reachable, like Ohio, has gone for Republicans now and there's no coming back. Biden also has a kind of working class credibility and in the image of him and that, you know, he's Joe 
he takes the train home every day. There's this, the, the way that he talks, he's, where he's from. It works for places like Wisconsin. It works for places like Minnesota. It works for American politics where there is a little bit of a thing going on. People are moving out to more exurb areas and, you know, they're, they're working class, but they've made some money and Democrats still have a chance at them, but they're losing them fast. And Trump got a lot of them in 2016. Biden got some of those people back. And um, that, so for all his faults, if electability, if you just want to win, I think it was the right choice. I think Buttigieg would have been destroyed. Uh, the first debate, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say, I mean, he seemed like a very nice person and, and, a, and has had many assets. But in a national campaign in the first debate would have been destroyed. Biden, well, the negative side is, he made so many goofball statements over the years, these goofy statements and things that one wasn't going to destroy him in 2020. He already, I don't want, should I say immunization? Maybe there's a little bit of that with older politicians. Where Buttigieg, the first time it happened, if he was the candidate, would have been, this guy's terrible. Look at that. He made a mistake. You know, he made a, he made a flub. He saw that, that bit with, uh, was it O'Rourke? Made a few strange statements and that disqualified him fairly, fairly rapidly. New people coming in. It's it's unfortunate we don't we don't like use that. Uh, I'd be like, oh Joe versus um, oh this guy's. And you also get afraid if you're in the same party and this is your candidate, you start losing confidence and the polls go down and then the media runs with that and that's how general campaigns work. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. For all his faults, Joe Biden, a professional politician, you weren't going to see some of these obvious things. And in a debate with Trump, he was able to at least maintain a little bit of a, um, I, I still think Trump talked a lot more. Biden's a very, you know, especially with his age, he's, he wasn't able to always go toe for toe, but he's able to at least maintain a little bit of a fight back. Some other Democrats might be more... Um, I don't know, try to be above the fray. And uh, that doesn't work when you're you're up against Trump. So for those reasons, I think people felt Biden might have been a good choice. There could have been others that didn't run, but they didn't run. Um, and Sanders might have had it. I think almost any Democrat, so Sanders was able to win the primary. I think he might have had a shot at winning the 2020 election, especially with COVID tariffs, the economy, uh, Trump's unpopularity in some of the statements. Because any statements Joe... Biden made compared to what Trump had said over four years, I think we're just looked at. I do, I will address 88 just because you brought it up. Um, yeah, he uh, so Biden tries to run the first time in 1988, tries to be a new candidate. Now, that's an important thing to understand with Biden. We were talking about Delaware before. When Biden became a senator, it was a surprise win by a very young person. He was barely old enough to get the Senate seat beating a Republican in a state that Nixon won. Delaware was a Republican state at that time. It's no longer so, but it was. Democrats didn't have a chance there. Biden was written off because he was written off. 
He won in an upset. It's such a small state. You can knock on every door. And he had tremendous energy and did this. The other guy was a little lethargic and Biden beat him just by a few thousand votes. He gets in there. He's not uh, a you know, super liberal Democrat. He's being very cautious almost his whole career. When he runs in 88, it's to run to be more of a yuppie Democrat, a new type of Democrat, to reach out to the yuppies, the people that might have voted for Reagan in 1980 and 1984 that had some money, that were younger. It was like the Democrats have to move away from McGovern and move away from the hippies, say, and the the real, and then also the labor and liberal activists. And that was really where Biden came from and what he was trying to do in 88. He was trying to be new Coke, like a new type of, of Democrat. Um, a bit like Tony Blair. Very much the so. Labour Party more centrist. Very much so. Much he, ended up, uh, he ended up copying Tony Blair's boss, Neil Kinnock, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so uh, he ended up copying a speech that Neil Kinnock gave. And it's such, first of all, the 87 UK campaign is incredible. Nobody expects, uh, and, and, you know, Thatcher just won, uh, I believe, an 83 election, won this outstanding victory. Nobody, the Labour Party's in shambles. Nobody thinks they have a chance. And it's, I think, one of the first times in British politics where a single individual runs the way they do in America and starts to influence a campaign. And Neil Kinnock is running better than the Labour Party, and he's making these speeches. And one of them is, it's a great question that he asked that all progressives and liberals should should ask in every country. Why did my ancestors do better than or why did I do better and why does my wife do better than my ancestors were they stupid is the brain different you know that I'm paraphrasing because I certainly don't want to copy the speech yeah. and then you know my he goes my and one of the lines is you know my ancestors uh worked in the mines and then went up and played football all day all night they were strong people you're telling me they were lazy? They weren't. Why didn't they succeed? And of course, it's because of a series of government policies that we need to support and enact about university education and social spending and things like that. Great. Biden picks up on it. Picking up on the idea is great. He actually copies the speech word for word, and he makes the speech, including the bit about minors. So then they, and he makes it at the Iowa Fair. And in a previous speech, he gives credit to Neil Kinnock in the Iowa Fair speech with the cameras on and everything, he does not. They, it, it's a few days later, they start looking it up and, and they're like, he doesn't have any minors in his ancestry. <laughs> and it doesn't, yeah. there were no Biden minors, but he actually, instead of just saying like, why didn't the Bi why did the Bidens do better? Why am I doing better than the Bidens in Scranton? He, he said, you know, my ancestors were minors and they played football. He used American football now, <laughs> but yeah. And uh, so, and that, it's not only that, it, it, you know, usually it's like a rule of threes. You catch three things, they catch something else. And then they catch in Syracuse Law School, he had cribbed uh, law notes. Reality is he didn't, he didn't, he didn't rewrite somebody's paper. He copied the notes. It's still a no-no in law school. It's not as big as if you actually copied somebody's actual legal paper, but he copied the notes. And he was brought into the dean and he had to make up the course. And they found the reporters found those records from a Syracuse law school days. And because of all of those things, Biden, you know, had to even before the 80 elections, actually 87, he had to terminate his campaign. And so that is the first time he runs. He runs again in 2008 and then runs in 2020. And uh, 
Most people don't get that many chances. No, this is a, it is unusual. The Biden thing is unusual. He, he absent Trump, he probably wouldn't be president. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've mentioned his electability a lot and obviously mm. his age. Um, to kind of ask, well, mention something that's quite bizarre. Um, there's an interesting Stephen Colbert interview with Barack Obama where he says, You know what? If, if I could make an arrangement where um, I had, a, I had a, a stand in, a front man or front woman, and, and they had an earpiece in, and I was just in my basement in my sweats mm-hmm. looking through the stuff, and then I could sort of deliver the lines, but somebody else was. Uh, doing all the talking and ceremony, wow. I, I'd be fine with that because I found the work fascinating. I'll give Biden the benefit of the doubt because he's got a stutter, but the overall point made there is curious. I mean, do you think Biden mm-hmm. could mm-hmm. be a proxy for someone or an organization? And for lack of a better phrase, the deep state or special interests, like you mentioned earlier. I mean, do you think he is actually at the wheel or? or even commands the same sort of power of presidents before him. Everyone should remain a healthy, uh, uh, should, should maintain a healthy skepticism about everything. In my opinion, there's no, um, you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I never want to say never to, to anything. Um, and it's great to think about those scenarios because it is, you never know, even if even if there's some silly, I, I don't consider the deep state like it could be a silly term, but it could have some meaning in that there are some people who keep the same jobs over a lot of time, right? And, and you certainly saw the Bush administration was benefiting from people, the people that got us in the Iraq war were people who were in the Ford administration in the 1970s. Is that a deep, you don't need too much of a scary term to say that's somewhat of a deep state thing because those same people kept getting the jobs, kept getting favors, okay? So there could be some light version of it. That all being said, I don't think it's as like robotic as, as what you, I don't think that scenario you're describing. People function differently at old age than others. That being said, his age it should be a concern. It's another thing where I say if it wasn't, um, if Trump wasn't the other choice, I don't think you get, somebody this old elected president um he i will say on the other hand there are a lot of people that wanted sanders and i don't think age was ever a factor for many of those young people who were supporting him there's a there's a positive to age the positive to age is that sometimes young people are on the rise and they have they want some things and they're going to have a lot of years they need income for with older people sometimes we can say, well, you know, he's only got a couple of years left. It, it's hopefully going to be about duty and things like that. Um, you have to keep watching a president like this for capability, for speech, for all of those things. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking those questions for somebody who is a leader. Seems my view, and, and I do have a little bit of advantage of watching a lot of old video of the old Biden. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, he, and, and the mannerisms <laughs> are similar but slower. I don't see like it lost. I see him. I see him kind of affecting the same thing as that '88 Biden, but which was always a little. There was always a little awkwardness to it. Like it was never quite uh, super polished. Always a little bit over overstated. A little bit overstated when he was judiciary chair. You know, making those statements. You know, there's always a little bit of hey, he rehearsed this a lot uh, in Biden.
And um, so I, I look out for all those things and I don't know what will happen, you know, with that. Um, it, you could reach a point where um, he can't serve anymore or you could reach a point where he's running in 2024. Uh, I had a mayor in a town that I lived in that was 81. He was still taking neighbors complaints and meetings till midnight and, and everything that a mayor should do at that time. Uh, you know, the guy go back to, Reagan, for instance, was our oldest president prior to this. But he obviously, we know now, had a condition. So he had dementia, and now we know that, that the onset of that is earlier. If Biden does not have that, then he could be functioning well at this age, you know, versus a Reagan who was actually younger, but not functioning well in that second term. There are things like diary entries declined between Reagan's first term. Reagan kept a diary every day. First term and second term, you decline in the diary. We see that, you know. So we'll, yeah, keep watching. And um, it's totally, these are totally fair questions to ask to me. The age, it's not unfair to just, you know, not to consider age in the presidency. And and for people in other countries, because you know, our leaders so important to yours. Maybe not as much as 25 years ago, but still. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't want to lead you down the the path there of t like too much conspiratorial stuff because the nature of your your work and your podcast is so well researched and everything. I don't I didn't want to draw you out on too much speculation. I just thought it was a very interesting uh, statement from Obama, especially given when you also have the questions about mm -hmm. Biden's cognitive ability. Um, presidents and vice presidents don't assume they're a team throughout history. There's a lot of mm, they say they're a team. There's always a lot of tension there. Eisenhower and Nixon, Humphrey and Johnson, Bush, Reagan barely consulted Bush. He's in the NSC meetings, I guess, but until Bush became president in his own right, he didn't have a lot of power. They're not always uh, as equal. There, there's a lot of politics behind those choices. You know, and I, for instance, even Biden-Harris, I, I don't know the relationship, you know, will we'll, time will tell. Um, the choices are always made for politics. And a little bit for government. Okay, yeah, you want somebody that can govern, maybe. But politics is the bigger choice. And and in terms of the conspiracy stuff, yeah, I mean, I think the best way to to blend what I do and all of that is that uh, I I like I think it's healthy to have that skepticism and ask questions and things. But um, yeah, you got to watch the conclusions you come to and I'll just assume like, oh, there's this term out there I see on Twitter, so I'm just going to glom onto it. Uh, but the uh, the nature Americans are very skeptical people by nature. We're very um, still think there's that pioneer attitude in a lot of the maybe not in the Northeast, but in other parts of the country. There's a lot of like show me, don't tell me. That's how Bush W. Bush got elected. They like that kind of thing. Um, all those all those factors are present. People do not make choices in America. Probably more than any country, make what I would call heuristic choices, choices based on emotions and gut feelings. Could happen everywhere, but I think there's more, probably more policy consideration in other places than, than America. Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to you on a show explaining how you felt like everything had already happened before in politics. Mm -hmm. And given that we've got COVID, mm -hmm. the restriction on rights, the censorship of the internet, mm -hmm. The inflation, the mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. talk of election mm -hmm. fraud, the strange mm -hmm. relationship between states and global institutions, and 
the image that Biden's currently given off, do you feel like we are navigating unprecedented times? Yeah, I mean, it's all I, I feel that almost everything has happened before, because even some of the things you mentioned, you know, we had a pandemic in 1918. It just depends how view how long the view of history is. We had inflation in the 70s. It's only this generation that's going to be knocked out if they don't live in like brazil or something they're going to be knocked off their their duffer by inflation because they have no experience with it whatsoever in america we have no experience we've had low inflation since the the 90s we have no idea what it is we've had low interest rates since the 90s if those go up we have no idea the uh, americans will be caught off guard they have to go to the history textbooks where it some of this has happened before figure like trump i mean and even the 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 current administration and things they're doing, um, the mass, um, I mean, this pandemic and the mass response to it and the, and, and the protests and the conflict and social media, all of it is very new. There's new forms happening, certainly. Just because, you know, what's the best way? Mark Twain says, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. It rhymes. It doesn't. It's not exactly the same. And new technologies, if there is going to be changes, that's what really changes things. I'm sure the first cannon that was brought to battle, you know, changed the world a little bit in the way that some, some, uh, you know, uh, herald couldn't describe who, who only knew of archers and, and swords and things like that. But so technology is going to, and social media is the technology of our time that can put people in one place at one time or bring people together that aren't normally able to find each other. That's different. And if, if you enter, bring that into politics, that's very different. The real question to ask, though, is, does that mean you throw away the history book? And I say, no, it's still of use. It's just not everything anymore yeah you got still got to assess your current situation the whole time i've done the podcast i've always said there could be new events it's just that you use history to better understand what possibly to do or what possibly might happen can't predict i don't really do a lot of prediction or how you should feel about it yeah um and then and all of those things it should hopefully reading history should make one feel a little better, maybe a little calmer? Well, I certainly feel that way when I listen to your podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll say that much. I mean, is, do you want to tell the listeners where they can find you a bit more? Um, oh, yeah, sure. Time? Yeah, it's just my history can beat up your politics. It's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Um, got a lot of people on uh, Podcast Addict now and Overcast listening and uh, Stitcher and anywhere else that you – you get podcasts. The UK is my third largest country after Canada and has more listeners than many states in the US for the podcast. So I'm very proud to have listeners. I'm just excited that they're interested in hearing me talk 98% of the time about the US because that's what I know. That's And that's what we talk about, politics and, and the history. Yeah. I mean, I, personally, I find US politics it's, it's interesting, but I find it easier to follow because uh, not to disregard too much of history, but it's relatively new. Mm. You know, there's, there's a lot been going on in the last 200 years, whereas British history, it's quite difficult to follow because it goes on forever and everyone's got the same name. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, you did have John Smith almost became the prime minister at one point. That would have been. Yeah, I mean, like the king, you know, you're on a, the eighth Henry. How are you meant to, how are you meant to follow that? You know, anyway, thanks a lot for your time today. Absolutely. Glad to do it. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Matthew. Join us next time for the Political Dark Side Podcast. It's a disaster. Whose idea was that? It's ridiculous. For more information, visit politicaldarkside.com. I want to thank you for listening, and thanks to Matthew Holland and the Political Dark Side podcast. Find his podcast, The Political Dark Side, on Apple Podcasts, other places. My website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I thank you for listening. Got a lot of good episodes coming up this year.